Turning your Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're continuing, of course, our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been seeing that Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Jews, and that's who he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're near the end of Jesus' ministry. We're about to see his arrest. He has finished the prayer in the garden, and then this large crowd is led by Judas, and the religious leaders come, and they swarm into the area, and they're going to take Jesus as their prisoner. And so a very powerful and moving passage. Jesus is laying down his life for us. We've got to realize that, that this is... Jesus is the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. And what we see this morning is the disciples' response. First, they wanted to fight, and then they run off, just as Jesus had said. And then Judas comes, and we're going to see that Judas comes with this kiss, pretending to love Jesus, but, you know, he can't fool Jesus. And as we look at that, there's so much in this little passage, and I think we'll have a great time as we go through it. Perhaps one of the most famous sermons ever preached was one by Jonathan Edwards. This is a long time ago. And Jonathan Edwards wrote, basically had a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, he was a guy that he actually wrote out his messages. So if he stood up here, he would be doing this. He would say, uh, Jesus, and he would, he would actually read it. And so he read his sermon, which was called Sermons in the Hand of Angry God. And the point of the sermon was this, that mankind has fallen and sinful and under judgment, and the perfect, righteous, holy God is angry at them, and he's going to punish all of them, and if they do not believe, then they're all going to go to hell. That was what the message was about. Well, let me just tell you something. First of all, I don't like the title, because I don't think it's accurate. I don't think God is angry at mankind. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, said God demonstrated his love toward us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We need to realize that we are the enemies of God, not God, the enemies of man. It is God who so loved the world. It is that each one of us have gone astray. And so another way of looking at it could be this, God in the hand of angry sinners. See, because man's natural attitude toward God is not indifference but it is malice, it is anger, it is hate. We actually see in this morning's passage that the religious leaders are coming with their goal to kill Jesus. It is God in the hand of angry sinners. This morning, this is the passage, and we see them coming into the garden looking for the one that they want to put to death. Now, remember where we are. Jesus says they've had the, what we'd call the Last Supper, and they left, and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me just show you this, that they left the city most likely somewhere down in here. They went up the hill, and they've gone to the Mount of Olives, and there's the Mount of Olives. And then on the Mount of Olives, of course, all these olive trees. Now, this is modern times, so there's a church that's been built there, but then there's some things back there. Many people believe that olive trees are very, very old. Some of them are three to 4,000 years old. So many people believe that some of these olive trees were there when Jesus was there. And so this is the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the place of the olive trees. And so here is Jesus there. And last time we saw that when Jesus got there, he had 11 guys. Judas is gone. Judas is gone to get the crowd. And he took uh, eight of them and he told them to stay there. He took Peter, James, and John. He brought them over here. He told them to stay awake while he prayed over there. And that's the last thing that we saw that he was praying. They kept falling asleep. He kept coming over. And so that's where we are. And what's about to happen is that Judas is about to come with the big crowd. Now, Jesus is, is, is really sad when he's praying because I think he's, he's realizing that he's going to be separated from the Father, that when he takes the sin of mankind on himself, uh, he's going to be separated. That's why on the cross we'll see that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he now has prayed three different times. He comes back and he basically tells the guys, get up because the betrayer's at hand. If you look at uh, verse 46 is where we finished last week in Matthew 26. It says, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is 
at hand. And so he says, basically, it's time Judas is coming to arrest him. Let me break down the passage for you. First of all, in verses 47 through 56, basically, we're going to see that Jesus is arrested in the garden. We see what happens there. And then we see the beginning of the trials. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew right here, we just see one trial in this passage. There's actually two already. There's going to be three total. We'll see it, uh, three total before the Jews. We'll see it how it fits together in just a minute. Now, remember, they've had the Passover meal. They've come up here and Jesus is here, three guys here, eight guys there, and coming up the hill with a whole bunch of people is Judas. So look at verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was talking to the guys, he told them to get up, and he actually said, the one who betrays me is at hand. He already knows everything. He always knows everything. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priest and the elders of the people. So while he was speaking, they're coming. Now, listen, Jesus has already said to them that one of you will betray me. He's already said that you will, that the sheep, that the shepherd will be hit and the sheep, sheep will scatter. He's already told them that they're going to all deny him. He's just to tell them that the betrayer is in hand. Everything that he says is true, and it always comes true. And so, because he, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you remember last time, he said, you will betray me. And they all said no, but they do. They all betray and run off. Well, we got Judas coming. Now notice verse 47 again says, while he was speaking, while Jesus was talking to, the, to his men, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, and they all came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, Judas is one of the 12. He had been with Jesus for at least three years. He kept the money. He saw Jesus. He actually did miracles just a few days earlier for about $120 and 30 pieces of silver. He agreed to betray Jesus. And so this great multitude is coming. And, and if you read the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke, it says there were soldiers, there were temple police, there were religious leaders. And so you have some Roman soldiers coming. You have, and let, let me just show this little map for you to give you an idea. Here's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's up on the side of the Mount of Olives. The religious leaders had most likely been coming from the Temple Mount area. They'd been coming from Caiaphas' house. They most likely went by the fortress of Antonio and got some Roman soldiers. And so they've got Roman soldiers. They've got some temple guards. They've got a whole bunch of people, and they've come out of the city, and they're going up the road to Gethsemane. Now, Judas is leading the way, and so they're all coming there, and, and if you picture uh, 10 or 15 or 20 people, you're picturing the wrong picture. There could be as many as 200 to 300 people coming. If you look at the other Gospels, there's soldiers, there's temple police, there's Romans. It even says a cohort, which could be as many as 600 people. So we don't know. And so the question to be raised, why are so many people coming? Why do they have Roman soldiers? Why do they have the temple guards? Why do they have all these people? Because I think deep down, they're not sure what to think. They know that Jesus has been amazing. And they may think, look, if we get there, he may do some kind of miracle. You know, he may do some kind of miracle and mess us all up or something, so we better take enough people. We never know what he's going to do. Now, they've already met as a group, not, not so far this night, but at another time, the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 people, the high priest, and then the other men, and they met together. They were the rulers of Israel, and they had already decided what they wanted to do was kill Jesus. They didn't want to kill him at the Passover time because it was too many people, but when Judas came, when Judas came and said, this is a good time to get Jesus, he's going be on there, they went ahead and go with it. So they've come to get Jesus. Now notice the passage, verse 48. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whoever, whomever I kiss, 
He is the one sees him. Now, there was a sign, and that was to, to kiss Jesus. And you think, kiss Jesus? Well, remember the culture. You know, you've seen them on TV. They, they kiss each side of the face and everything. And that was just sort of a greeting way. And, and you say, well, why has he got to do that? Doesn't anybody know what Jesus looks like? Well, you've got to remember, it's nighttime, and it's, it's, it's dark out there, and they're coming with swords, and they got, you know, you know, torches and everything. And so Judas says, listen, just so you don't miss him, I'm going to go up, and I'm going to go right to him and kiss him. And when you see me get that guy, then y'all come get him. That'd be a lot easier to do because there's just not going to be any other way to do it. And you notice he comes up, and it says, the one who was betraying him gave him a kiss. He says, the one who's a dream said, here's my sign. Whoever I kiss, he is the one sees him. You know, it is so easy to pretend to love Jesus because he's going to go up to Jesus and kiss him like he, he loves him. And he doesn't love Jesus. He's upset. And he, he doesn't want Jesus to, to be the king because Jesus is not going to be the king he thought he should be. And it's, it's easy for us sometimes to talk about how much we love Jesus, but we really don't. You know, because uh, so often we, we want to look good and we want to talk about how much we love Jesus. But you know what Jesus said? Here's what he said. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. And so he's going to go kiss Jesus. And you know what? He can fool other people. He can fool himself, but he can't fool Jesus. So I want you to look at verse 49. He says, immediately Jesus, Judas went to Jesus and said, hell, Rabbi, and kissed him. And so he comes to Jesus in front of all these people, and they've got the torches and the soldiers and everybody. They're getting ready to arrest him. And he comes right up to Jesus and says, hell, Rabbi. Now, I want you to notice something. The, the word hell there is actually the word chorus, which means grace. He could have said grace, Rabbi. It could have been translated that way. Or joy, even. He may even say, joy, Rabbi. Now, Rabbi means teacher. And I want you to have noticed something. Jesus calls him teacher. Jesus does not call him Lord. When you saw earlier, back when the disciples were around the table, they all said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it? They call him Lord because they recognize who he is. Judas doesn't call him Lord. Even at the table, when Jesus said, Judas, you're going to betray me, Judas says, is it me, Rabbi, teacher? He calls him teacher. He calls him teacher here. He says, hell, Rabbi, and he kissed him. That is the sign. I want you to remind you of something. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but over in Luke... Uh, I want to read something for you. In Luke, I'm going to hold my place. Let me flip over there. If you want to, you could flip over there. But it's Luke 22, verse 47. Listen to this. It says, while Jesus was speaking, this is the same event, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, who was one of the 12, was pretending, or was preceding them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Now, what is this? In Matthew, all it says is Judas comes up and kisses him. In Luke, it says, Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man, with a kiss. So as Judas was coming up to Jesus to give him the kiss, Jesus said, are you betraying me? He uses the word betraying. He knows. He says, are you betraying me with a kiss? Now, there's one other thing I want you to know, and I'm going to read it to you. This is in John chapter 18. Listen to this. This is, this is so fantastic. It's verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And I told this to you a while ago. I mentioned it last week. But remember, Jesus has... Got his men. They've come forward. Here comes Judas with a crowd. Now, this happened before Jesus, Judas came and kissed Jesus. Here's what happened. Jesus stepped out of the crowd and said, who are you looking for? And somebody there said, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus. And he said, I am. Now, in your Bible, it says, I am he, but the he is in italics. Actually, actually he said, ego a me in Greek, which is, I am. That is the name of God. He looked at the group and he said, 
I am. It says they took steps backwards and put their faces down. Now that's power. Listen to this. This is John chapter 18. It says, Judas having received the Roman cohort and the officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees came with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said, Who do you seek? They said to him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I am. Judas was also betraying him, was standing with him. And when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And let me tell you, if I'm coming out there to arrest him, and I'm thinking I'm going to arrest him, and he steps out and says, who are you looking for? And we say, Jesus, and he says, I am. And when he said that, it is so powerful that I go back and bow down. I think I might have gone on home. What do you think? I mean, I might have said, you know, I'm not going to arrest this guy. I mean, who is he? Who is he? How can he say, I am, and I go backwards? He went ahead and asked it again. Who do you say, who you're seeking? And he said, Jesus and, and, uh, of Nazareth. And he said, I am again. So we, you see this. And so in John, he said, who do you seek? And they say, I am. And I am is the name of God. So it's powerful. Now, in Matthew, we're back here in verse 50. So Judas comes up and says, Hail, Rabbi, and kisses him. Now watch what happens. And Jesus said to him, Friend... Do what you've come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, I want you to notice something that Jesus said, friend. They got what they wanted. They come, they come up there, and they're ready to get him, and he, and he uses the word friend. Now, friend's kind of a unique word there because in verse 50, again, it says they, they grabbed him and they seized him, and he says, friend, do what, what you have wanted to do. And that word is pretty unique. It has an idea of a comrade. It's almost like somebody, and this is kind of unusual, it's, it's only used maybe one other time in the New Testament, and it means somebody that you call a friend, but it's somebody you really don't know. It'd be like you meet somebody and you go, hey, brother, how you doing, man? You don't really know them, but you use that term, and Jesus used that term with, with uh, uh, Jesus used that term with Judas. And so Jesus said to him, friend... Do what you have come for. And they came and they laid hands on him and they seized him. It's very powerful. And now action. Now's the action. Look at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Well, it's time for action. Now, Peter's going to act. Remember what Peter's already said? I'm going to, I will die with you. I will fight with you. I will do whatever you want me to do. And, and he did. And you realize that before they left the meeting, remember they were in the upper room? And Jesus said, you know, I told y'all when you went out the first time, don't take anything with you. When you go out the second time, take some weapons. That's what he said. And they said, we have two. And he said, that's enough. They left the upper room with two weapons. Peter happens to have one of those weapons. And so when they grabbed Jesus to take him away, and I do want to say something to make sure you understand something. They're not getting Jesus because they're strong enough to get Jesus. The only reason they get Jesus is because Jesus is letting them take him. Look, Jesus is all-powerful. He's God. This is the time. I've been studying the book of John, just reading through it just for, just for, for fun as we go through it. But there are places in the Gospel of John where it says, and his time was not at hand. His hour was not at hand. His time was not at hand. When it gets to this part, it says, and now his hour was at hand. See, there are times that it said they surrounded him and they were going to throw him off the edge of a cliff. 
And he says, he walked right through them because his time was not at hand. It is now his time. Jesus is now ready to lay down his life. Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I bring it back up again. And the only reason they're allowed to even arrest Jesus is because Jesus lets them arrest him. And so when they grab him, it's not like, oh, no, they got him. Listen, this is Jesus giving himself over. But here's Peter. What is he going to do? He says, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, one of the other gospels tells us it's Peter. It reached out through his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Well, P- Peter's trying to be brave, and so he's going to fight. So he reaches up like this, and, and uh, there's a, the, one of the slaves of the high priest does this, and it cuts off his ear. And... Uh, so we could say this, Peter, you're probably a great fisherman, but you're not that good with a sword because he cut off his ear. And Luke tells us that Jesus touched this guy. His guy's name was Malchus. Jesus touched Malchus and he was healed. The actual Bible says that if you were Malchus, just think you, you did this and your ear got cut off and there's blood everywhere and Jesus walks up to you and he touches you and then you go, I think I would have left then, wouldn't you? You'd have said, thank you very much. Thank you, I'm gone. I mean, Jesus is amazing. Right in the middle of all of this, he does this. Jesus cares for everyone. Well, look at verse 52. Look what Jesus, then Jesus said to him, said to Peter, put your sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Jesus tells him to put the sword up. Now listen, Jesus is not giving some great philosophy. He's saying, listen, if you pull the sword out, they're gonna kill you. So put the sword back up. You're not that good with it. You're not going to be able to defend yourself. I have other things for you to do. Put the sword back up. Because if you take up the sword to fight, they will kill you. Because he says, if you live by the sword, you're going to perish by the sword. You know, you can sense Peter so much that he's there He's already, he's, Jesus has told him you're going to deny him. In fact, Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times and you're Peter and you're saying, I am not going to. I'm ready to fight. I'll fight right now. I'll cut somebody's ear off, you know. And what does he say to him? Put your sword up. Put your sword up. Put your sword up. And look what Jesus says. He said, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once at my disposal bring more than 12 legions of angels. You know how many a legion is? A legion is 6,000. He says, I could get 72,000 angels if I wanted to. Remember that if Jesus wanted to, all he's got, really, Jesus could just speak and everybody die right there. He could do anything he wanted to. He could bring in 72,000 angels and stop the whole thing, but that's not the plan. The plan is for Jesus to die. I want you to understand how powerful angels are. You know, think about it. Jesus saying, I could get 72,000 angels. Do you realize, if you remember back in the Old Testament, when Isaiah was the prophet and Hezekiah was the king and the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem and God sent one angel and one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian troops. So you don't need 72,000 angels. One angel would take care of everything. But Jesus says, hey, listen, if I need to, I, I could, my father would send 72,000 angels if I need him. See, the, the plan is not for Jesus to escape. The plan is not that, the plan is for him to be arrested. The plan is for him to be tried. The plan is to be handed over to the Gentiles. The plan is that he's going to die on the cross for us and pay for sin and rise again. That's the plan. He's laying down his life. 
They're not taking it from him. The only way, that, listen, we're going to see it later on. It's going to be in a couple of weeks, maybe three, four, five weeks, when, when Pilate is talking to Jesus and Pilate says something like this, why don't you talk to me? Don't you know I have the authority to put you to death? And Jesus says the only authority you have is what God's given you from above. Listen, they're not in control. Jesus is in control. He's in control all the time. This is not something like, oh, how sad they got him. No. He said, I lay down my life. Look at verse 54. He says, how then, listen, if I call the angels, then how will the scriptures be fulfilled which says this must happen? See, the Bible says the Son of Man goes as has been determined. God's plan is that Jesus would die for us. Woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. Woe to, to, to Judas because he's the one that did that. He's responsible for his actions. But the plan is that Jesus would die. That's why Isaiah called him the suffering servant who's going to die and be bruised and crushed and wounded for our iniquities. That's why he says these scriptures have to be fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures have to be fulfilled. Now, then Jesus turns to this crowd. And listen, there could be 500 people there. We're not talking about 10 or 15 people. It's at least two, three, 400 people. He looks at the crowd. Notice at verse 55, and Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. So he says, have you come out like I'm a robber? I'm a criminal? You understand that when Jesus is crucified, he's crucified between two people, and both of them were robbers. And if you also remember, the one that was supposed to die was a guy by the name of Barabbas, and Jesus took Barabbas' place, and Barabbas was a robber. So when Jesus says, you've come out to, to get me as if I'm a common criminal, and then he says, I, I used to sit in the temple every day. I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Why do you come get me like a criminal? I've been there every day. You know why? Because when people do wrong things, they don't do them in the daytime. They do them in the nighttime. See, we sin in the dark. Romans says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They're not going to arrest Jesus during the day because everybody can see them, but they're going to arrest him at night when they think everybody's asleep. And all those people who love Jesus, they're all asleep. They don't know anything is happening. All they've done is had Passover meal, and they're looking forward to the next day. And here they are getting Jesus because it's in the middle of the night, and they think we're going to get away with this and get rid of him because men love darkness rather than light. And that's what we see. And so then look what happens. But all this, Jesus is saying, but all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And that is, all of these prophecies about the Messiah are going to come true. Look at the end of verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now, I want you to notice something. In John 18, 8, Jesus says, let these men go. And they basically said, get out of here. And they all ran off. They all ran off. They all said they wouldn't run off. How little do we know our own weaknesses? Think about it. Peter and James and John and Nathaniel, all of them ran off. What did Jesus say they were going to do? They're going to run off. Listen, we should never say what we will not do. We don't ever say, I will never do this. Never trust in ourselves. Don't say, I would never do that. You don't know. Listen, you put any of us in the wrong place at the wrong time, we may do the wrong thing. So don't ever say, I wouldn't do that. Peter said, I will never, never uh, run away. He's run away. Jesus already said, you're going to deny me three times. We're going to see it coming up. He's going to deny him three times. So don't ever say what we wouldn't do. Well, they're all gone. 
They all left him. Notice it says, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is alone, but not really. You know why? Watch this. Back in John 16, Jesus said, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home. They're going to all run away. And to leave me alone, yet notice, and yet I am not alone. Why? Because the Father is with me. He's not alone. The Father's with him. So they got Jesus. And we could say, oh, this is terrible. Jesus said, no, this is not terrible. This has to happen. If you're going to have salvation, if you are going to have eternal life, I must go and die for you. So look what happens. It goes on to say in verse 57, those who seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Well, let's talk about, just for a minute, about the trials. There's six trials of Jesus, three before the Jews and three before the Romans. Let me give it to you. The First of all, they go to Annas. He was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. He used to be the high priest. He's the father-in-law. And so they go to him first, and he's found guilty. Then they go to Caiaphas, which is what we're going to see in Matthew, and it's a trial at night. He's found guilty. Then they go to the Sanhedrin, bring them together in the morning, and he's found guilty. So for the Jews, three trials, all found guilty. They take him to Pilate very early in the morning. He's found not guilty. They send him to Herod, Herod Antipas. He's the ruler of Galilee, found not guilty. They bring him back to Pilate. Pilate washes his hands in front of everybody, not guilty. So before the Jews, three times he's found guilty. Before the Romans, he's found not guilty. That's the six trials. I want you to understand that all of the trials of the Jews were illegal. First of all, in a Jewish trial, you had to have witnesses. Before Annas, which is the first trial, they had no witnesses. Also, the trials, according to Jewish law, could not take place at night. Two of the three trials were at night. And third, that the sentence must be the following day. So if you tried somebody on a Tuesday, you couldn't do the sentence until Wednesday. They tried him and sentenced him all on the same day. So they broke their own laws. They violated their own laws to put Jesus to death because they're so anxious to put him to death. Well, you can't tell this from Matthew, but I'm going to flip over for you to John chapter 18. And we're going to see what happened. They're going to go to Annas first. This is the first trial. I want you to listen to it. This is John 18, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, if you get confused and say, how could, how could one be a high priest and the next will be a high priest because according to the Mosaic law, you're the high priest and when you die, your son, your oldest son becomes the high priest. How could you have two at the same time? It's because by the time of Jesus, the Romans were in control and they picked the high priest. And so Annas had been the high priest and they removed Annas and put his son-in-law Caiaphas as the high priest. So basically, they're both the high priest basically almost at the same time. So they go to Annas first and without reading it all, Annas challenges Jesus and Jesus won't answer him. So some guy comes up to Jesus and slaps him in the face and Jesus says this. He says, if I've spoken wrongly, testify my wrong, but why do you strike me? Why did you hit me? So they hit Jesus and then it says, so Annas... In verse 24, Annas sent him to Caiaphas. So where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, where it says those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, uh, Matthew just didn't record going to, to, to uh, Annas. Now watch what happens. So those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. I want to show you something. They started out and they, they arrested Jesus at Gethsemane. And we're not sure they probably, we don't know where Annas was. 
We don't know whether he was at the Temple Mount or whether there was another house or wherever, but they had him there first. Then they go to the house of Caiaphas. By the time they get through, it'll be morning time. They'll eventually go back to the Antonio Fortress, the forces of Antonio, and this is where they'll meet Pilate. After they meet Pilate, then they'll go over to Herod's palace to meet uh, Herod, uh, you know, Antipas, and then back to there. So this is what we're seeing. That's, the trials are going to be that way. So here we are. They're at basically the house of Caiaphas. Now, I want you to notice something. They've gathered together, and this is just a picture. Of course, it's not accurate or anything. We don't know, but here is, here's Caiaphas, and here's Jesus, and all the people, and they're making all the accusations against him when they bring him before Caiaphas. But I want you to notice verse 58. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now, Peter's there. And it says that Peter followed at a distance. Let me just tell you something, something to learn from this. Don't follow at a distance. Get as close to Jesus as you can get. Don't follow him at a distance because if you're going to stay a distance, you're going to get yourself in trouble. James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Now, let me tell you what Peter's doing. Peter wanted to see what would happen, but he didn't want to be involved. And there are a lot of Christians who like to see things happen but they don't want to be involved. They just say, well, you know, you do it. Oh, I want to see what happens. Listen, we don't use our gifts, talents, and abilities. We just say, I, 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 I'm, just, I'm just here to watch. No. You know, there's that old saying, there are three kind of people, those who watch things happen, those who make things happen, and those who say, what happened? You know, and so uh, and I've got one other question for you. Just uh, look at this. Notice, where is this taking place? Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down. Peter got into the courtyard of the high priest. Now you say, so? High priest is rich. High priest is famous. High priest has a big house. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to show you a slide of what they think Caiaphas' house was like. How could Peter, a very poor fisherman, get in? Because if he'd have come up there, by the way, those days the houses were big, and then they had these courtyards, and around the house was a big fence, and then there was a gate, and you just didn't walk in. They had people at the gate. And you might go up to the gate and say, I'd like to go in. And they go, we don't know you. You're not coming in here. How did Peter get in? Do you know how he got in? John let him in. John, the youngest one. See, here's something you may not realize. That James and John worked for their father. And their father was a fisherman. But their father didn't have one boat. He had a number of boats. He was wealthy. And Peter... And Andrew worked with James and John with his, their father. So they actually worked for James and John's father. And so John knew most likely the family of the high priest because they were fairly wealthy themselves. You don't always think about it that way, but James and John were fairly wealthy. The Bible says that when Peter got to the gate, he couldn't get in. And it says John came over, talked to the person at the gate, and they opened it up and let Peter come in. Now, I guarantee you, later on, Peter wished that he had not got in there because that's where he got the challenge, and that's where three times he denied Jesus Christ. Next time, we're going to see the trials, and we'll see how it goes together. So let me give you some applications. First of all, 
Oh, oh by the way, that's the question. How did Peter get in there, John? First question, let, let's understand that you can't fool Jesus concerning our love. You can't. We can talk about loving Jesus and all that stuff, but uh, you, we can fool people, we can fool our church, we can fool ourselves, but we can't fool him. And let me tell you what he says. He says, keep his commandments. You, you want to show your love for me? Just do what he says. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that means let's live according to the scripture. The second thing is make serving him a priority. It is amazing to me that how many Christians just go through life. Listen, we all have gifts, talents, and abilities. Let's make a priority that we're going to not just go through life, but we're going to live for Jesus Christ. We're going to serve him because he is the most important thing in our lives. And the third thing is spend time with him. We call that like a quiet time or something where you get off by yourself and maybe you ought to do it every day in which you just read the Bible or maybe you pray or you write down things or you study something. You spend time getting to know him. So let's understand you can't fool him. And fool, fool is love that you love him. So if you're going to love him, let's obey him. Let's make him a priority and let's spend time with him. The second application is let's rest in the word of God as our authority. Do you know everything that he said came true? It's always true. He said, you'll deny me, they denied him. He said, you'll flee, you'll flee. He said, this is going to happen three times, it's going to happen three times. He said, Judas is coming up the hill with the group. But Judas, I mean, everything that he said is true. So let's go back as our authority, the word of God. D.L. Moody said this, God did not give us the scriptures to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Uh, Prof. Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, I've said this so many times, so you already know it, but Prof. Hendricks would start a class off and he'd say, what's the purpose of the study of the Word of God? And some guys would go, to know the Bible, and he'd say, wrong, to make application. The purpose of the study of the Word of God is not just to gain knowledge, it is to change our lives. It is to make application of the truth that we know. Let's rest in the authority of the Word of God. Last but not least, let's not follow Jesus at a distance. It's easy to do that. We can say, oh, I love Jesus, or I'm close to him, or he's, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. But the truth is, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is close range. Draw near to God. Do everything we can to get as close to him as we can. Use our gifts, talents, and abilities to serve him.